Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. We're about to read God's Word, and today's reading will be found in the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 to 44. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. I wonder if you can remember any good advice you received as a child. Uh, any helpful sayings that still ring in your mind to this day? When you take a moment, discuss with the people around you a helpful childhood saying. Discuss amongst yourselves what is a piece of wisdom you remember being taught as a child. Go for it. All right. All right, I want to hear some wisdom over here on this side. A saying or some wisdom you received as a child that you remember? Get down low and go, go, go. <laughs> I have never heard that before. I definitely don't know what it means. <laughs> I was like, why do you care that I don't know this advice? Okay, good. All right, I should know that. Thank you, Tom. All right, over this side. Flip, flop, slip, slop, slap. Good. All right. <laughs> I would have just gone with it. But slip, slop, slap. Good. I, I, like, I like the safety that you've all acquired. All right. Up the back, anyone remember some wisdom from childhood they want to share? I live in Oh, and it rhymes as well. A little nonsense now and then must be relished by the wisest of men. Is that right? Is really, I nearly got it. All right, great. All right, there's some wisdom for you. Now, something I really remember, and I suspect you might remember it too. If you don't have anything nice to say... Oh, good job. All right, excellent, excellent. I only wish I could live it out as easily as I can recall it. Better to be silent than to be critical. 
Better to take the high road than to be a complainer. Better to speak kindness or nothing at all. I think we can agree there's some wisdom in that, right? That's some really good advice to remember. Which is why I think it makes it all the more shocking that Jesus so emphatically ignores that advice in our passage this evening. We're used to seeing Jesus clash with the authorities by now. It happens again and again and it's going to get him killed. But this occasion is a bit different to a lot of other occasions where there's a clash. Because on this occasion, the teachers of the law, he seemingly unprovoked, uh, goes out and attacks the teachers of the law. He makes them look clueless, and then he condemns them. Why doesn't Jesus rise above? Why doesn't he take the high road? Why doesn't he keep it kind or keep it close? What would it take for the gentlest of men to become this hostile. Let's pray and we'll jump into it. Lord God, we need you to teach us. And so we pray that you use this passage tonight, you use your words tonight to teach us what it looks like to drop our nets and follow Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We're a few days out from Jesus' arrest and execution. He's in Jerusalem, that's where he spends the last week before his execution. He's in the temple courts again, and again he's surrounded by a crowd. Again he's teaching. And he brings up the teachers of the law. And we would have heard them mentioned a bunch of times as we've worked through Mark's gospel, but who exactly are the teachers of the law? Pharisees and Sadducees, that's another group of people we hear mentioned a few times. But a Pharisee or a Sadducee, that's kind of like a, a... a Jewish denomination at that time, like referring to somebody today as an Anglican or a Baptist or a Presbyterian. That's not a teacher of the law. The teacher of the law, that's a profession. That's a, a role. They were religious law experts. They knew the Old Testament laws, and they also had memorized the oral traditions that were based on the Old Testament laws. And it was their job to explain, interpret the scriptures for people and provide religious legal guidance. We don't really have an equivalent of this role in our society today, but I kind of see them as a combination of like a regular pastor and maybe a Bible college professor and a solicitor, just all rolled into one. Jesus brings up the teachers of the law to the crowd and he asks the crowd why the teachers of the law say that the Messiah, the Christ, God's chosen promised king, will be a descendant of David. What he does is he essentially presents this complicated riddle based on this obscure Old Testament reference. And I don't want to get bogged down in trying to unpack it all. Instead, just let me notice a couple of things that Jesus is doing here by presenting this riddle. First, Jesus is elevating the authority of the Messiah. He's elevating the authority of the Christ. The teachers of the law are expecting and teaching the people to expect that the Messiah is going to be an earthly king with an earthly kingdom. His power will be primarily political and military. He'll be another David figure. But Jesus wants people to understand that though the Messiah will be a descendant of David, he's going to have so much more authority than David did. He's so much more than an earthly king. Eventually, they're going to understand that he's not just the son of David, he's also the son of God. The second thing to note 
So firstly, while elevating the Messiah's authority, Jesus is simultaneously undermining the authority of the teachers of the law. Interpreting the scriptures is literally their job. It's their area of expertise. And Jesus wants people to notice that they really leave something to be desired. Now, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? But here is Jesus going out of his way to strip away the credibility of the teachers of the law. Why? Why would he do that? Fortunately, he doesn't leave us guessing. He gets even more direct in what he says next. Watch out for the teachers of the law. Just blunt. Watch out for them. Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk about in flowing robes. You know, nothing off the rack. They like to stand out. They like to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. Australia is a relatively egalitarian society, meaning we, we don't have much time for formalities or for hierarchies. And if anyone tries to stand out, we'd like to whack them back down. Australia is not like ancient Judea. For example, if you go to a party at, in ancient Judea, you can't just sit wherever you want. Seating is worked out by how important you are. So where you sit tells you how important you are, and where you sit also tells everyone else how important you are. In the synagogue, so at a religious gathering, most people would sit on the floor in the middle. A few lucky people might sit on the benches around the side, but the teachers of the law have a row of seats up the front facing everyone else that they can sit on the whole time. They're set apart from everyone else. They're facing everyone else. They're being seen by everyone else. What really blew my mind when I learned it this week is that was that in public, in places like the marketplace, etiquette demanded that if you were beneath someone else socially, you had to greet them first. That was your obligation, your responsibility. You had to greet someone that was higher up than you. And according to the traditions, the oral traditions and the traditions that the teachers of the law memorized and taught people, you were socially inferior to anyone who knew the law better than you did. Think through the implications of that if you're an expert in the law, if you're a teacher of the law. They must have gone about the marketplaces like tiny kings. Like Everyone would have had to just turn and look at them and say hi all the time. And maybe the teacher of the law responds, maybe not. But imagine what that would feel like, all eyes on you all the time when you're out in public. And Jesus says that they relish it. They love it. They are men that want to be seen. Jesus is saying that they are deeply invested in their own honor. They love their reputation. They are in it for themselves, not for the God that they theoretically serve. They want to be seen. Sounds obnoxious, right? Sounds hypocritical, but I think it's still surprising that Jesus is going out of his way to criticize them especially. I'm sure there's lots of other people doing lots of annoying things. But as he lists their flaws, he also includes this. They devour widows' houses. He doesn't get into specifics. He just mentions it briefly, almost casually. But now we start to see a little bit more where Jesus' anger is coming from. In the ancient world, a woman whose husband has died was set alongside an orphan in terms of their vulnerability, having no one to protect them. And Jesus suggests that the teachers of the law 
are making a habit of seizing their property. Perhaps they do it using their legal expertise under the guise of being legal custodians. Perhaps they do it through religious manipulation or what we might call spiritual abuse today. We don't know the details of their practices, but Jesus' indictment against them is clear. Instead of using their power, their authority, their influence to protect the vulnerable, they profit from the vulnerable and they promote themselves. And Jesus won't stay silent, not about this. He concludes that these men will be punished most severely. You can imagine some teachers of the law maybe just overhearing this in the temple courts and maybe they sneer, maybe they want to scoff. But if they knew, if they really knew the one who said these words, they wouldn't scoff, they would shudder. I said before that we don't really have an equivalent of the teachers of the law in our society. But that doesn't mean that we're strangers to the abuse of power. We've seen too many examples of Christian leaders use their influence, their power to take advantage of others and to promote themselves. Just last week, our neighboring church, Hillsong, was rocked by some really hard news. And I imagine our brothers and sisters in that community must be feeling shattered. I had intended to make a list with some other recent examples I could think of in other churches and other ministries, but the list quickly got too long and too depressing. Besides, I don't want to naively just point the finger elsewhere as though we couldn't have these problems here too. Just like the teachers of the law, religious leaders today are not immune to abusing power, to betraying trust, to loving their reputations and promoting themselves, to just wanting to be seen. Jesus tells us to watch out for people like this. What does that mean exactly? How do we do that? How do we watch out for those that might abuse their power? I don't want to cast suspicion over every Christian leader as we talk about this. And for what it's worth, Jesus has some really positive interactions with some teachers of the law. He's not trying to say every teacher of the law is bad as well. But I've been wrestling with this question a lot, and so I have some thoughts I want to offer. And I mentioned this recognizing that I have an enormous privilege in being a pastor here. And if I suggest any standards, I need to be held to those standards as well. So what would it look like to watch out for those that might abuse their power in a religious and a Christian setting? Number one, a leader's character needs to be valued so much more than their competence or their charisma. I think that has to be foundational. We have to be a church that values character more than competence and charisma. True for the kids leader just starting out and true for the senior minister, that we always want to value character over competence and charisma. Number two, leaders need to be servants. If leaders think certain acts Activities and requirements are beneath them. I'm not sure they're really getting the quality of our king who made himself nothing. I think it matters that at our last working bee, Ron was one of the last to leave covered in mud. Uh, He's away right now, so I can say it without embarrassing him. But I thought, man, that's 
Such great leadership. That's the kind of leader I want to follow. A leader that's willing to get his hands dirty and not assume some things are beneath him. Number three. Leaders need to be known. Now, and this one I think is the hardest one for me to nail down and I'm really wrestling with it. But maybe not necessarily by everyone, but by a number of people, leaders need to be known. And if a leader can only be known up the front or through a screen, then I don't think we're really knowing them. If my personal life is overwhelmingly private, I think that should raise some questions. It should be reasonably possible to know a leader, not just by who they are and how they present themselves as a leader, but in who they are as a friend, as a spouse, as a parent, as a teammate, as a driver on the road. Number four is related. Leaders should be consistent. As leaders are being known in different contexts, their character should be consistent too. The way they speak to people should be consistent across different contexts too. Our wonderful children's minister, Heather, once said to me that I speak more gently up the front than I do in staff meeting. (laughs) I felt that. I think she meant it more as a joke. She tried to say it lightly. But that inconsistency can't continue. I need to be harsher up the front. I did get what her point was, and I, I, I do mean it. That inconsistency can't continue. Uh, and I, I hope it's changed, but I'm sometimes really conscious of the fact that we have young adult trainees in the staff meeting, and I wonder, oh, how am I acting today? Number five, a leader needs to be accountable. Leaders need grace just like everyone else. I don't want to somehow imply that leaders don't deserve grace. We also need grace. But we don't deserve extra grace. And in a lot of ways, we should be held to a higher standard. I think we've got it so colossally wrong when we try to give a leader extra leeway or make more excuses because they have increased responsibility or increased exposure or publicity or reputation. In principle, I think a leader should be able to receive a rebuke from anyone. I want to think about how hard that would be practically. Maybe more realistically, at least, it should be clear to anyone if they want to find out who any given leader is actually accountable to, who they, in practice, submit to. Jesus calls us to watch out for those who would abuse their power. So we have to watch So the passage keeps going, so let's keep going. Jesus is done teaching the crowds for now. He's taking a break, but he's still in the temple courts. He's found a spot to sit, and he sits down opposite the place where people are putting their financial offerings. People could come to the temple and make a financial offering for a variety of different reasons. And so he's sitting down here, and there's a line of people queuing at the receptacle where people are coming in, and Mark says... Many rich people threw in their large amounts. And you can imagine the bag clinking as it hits the bottom of the receptacle and you think, oh wow, that was really generous. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. A poor widow. I used to read that and I think poor widow the same way we'd say, oh you poor thing. Like, oh the poor widow. But no, it's a financial term. She's destitute. She's in poverty. She's poor. Literally, it doesn't say she put in something worth only a few cents. It says she put in one sixty-fourth of a denarius. And if my grasp of ancient wages is correct, in Australia today, that's the equivalent of putting in $2.47. 
Jesus points out this widow. She put in everything she had to live on. $2.47. And it's impossible not to think of the teachers of the law when we see that everything she has is $2.47. The teachers of the law who exploit widows just like this one. The teachers of the law who are committed to being seen. But Jesus sees the widow. While everyone else looks at the powerful, greets them in the marketplace, gives them the seats of honor in the banquet, admires their showy prayers, Jesus sees the widow. And while everyone else is giving their honor to the rich, Jesus saves his honor for her. And of course he does, right? Because that's who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David and the Son of God who uses his unimaginable authority not for himself but for others. Jesus listens to the voiceless. He upholds the weak. He sees the overlooked. He uses his power to protect. He uses his words to call out injustice. He uses his death to usher in a new kingdom where people like the widow can be protected and honoured. Where people who serve can be raised up and where people who exploit can be rejected. The teachers of the law, they use all their influence, all their authority, their capacity for themselves. But the widow uses all her capacity to live for God. And we all have capacity and influence too. It might not always feel like we have a lot of authority and we might have less influence than some others, but we all have it to some degree, even if it's to the amount of $2.47. And like the widow, we can try to use this influence for God for his purposes in the world, for a kingdom that he's establishing that is based on justice and peace and mercy, or like the teachers of the law, we can use it for ourselves. We can use it to protect and promote the vulnerable, or we can use it to promote ourselves. It is so, so tempting to want to use our influence to be seen to show ourselves off to others, and I I feel that temptation so regularly. But if I really stop and think about it, I'd rather be seen by Christ. The teachers of of the law wanted to be greeted in the marketplaces, but I'd rather be greeted by Christ. The teachers of the law wanted to be robed in their flowing get robes, but I'd rather be clothed in Christ. The teachers of the law wanted the best seats at the banquets in the synagogue, but I'd rather be seated with Christ. The teachers of the law wanted to be seen. But like the widow, I just want to be seen by Christ. Lord God, make that our hearts more and more. Break our hearts if you have to. Free us from this relenting desire to make ourselves seem awesome. 
Instead, let us use our power, our influence, our authority, all our capacities to live for your kingdom, a kingdom of justice, a kingdom that promotes and protects the vulnerable, a kingdom that is like its king, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Bend Hills 6pm Congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmatt's.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.